join us tonight as we um, get into lesson eight. How have you all been? You're rolling in from work. So last week it had been raining and you weren't able to do much work, but thank God we've got some work this week. Every day. All right, well, I am very, very excited about tonight's lesson. We're going to dive right in. Um, I have taught this, as you know, I've taught this study many times in various settings. And the lady that I just shared the story about, we weren't doing, we weren't doing this study in a church. We were actually doing it in her home every week. And when we got to lesson eight, I told them, prepare for a birthday party. And so that night we had cake and ice cream and we wore party hats and we had a birthday party. So I almost thought tonight that maybe we should have some cake and ice cream, but we're here in the sanctuary, so we won't do that. But um, tonight we're going to talk about a birthday, a special birthday. And this is not the birth of Jesus. We've already discussed that. But this is the birth of the church. So this is one of my favorite nights and a great study. I know you're going to enjoy it, but let's go ahead and dive in. So with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection being accomplished, God was about to do a new thing. Something new is coming. Something exciting is coming. And this would be the birth of the church. So up until this point, when we have been studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've been talking about the life, the ministry of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, we must remember that this was not yet the church age. Okay? He had come to establish his church, but he hadn't finished and accomplished the work that he came to do. <clears throat> so... Um, in order for the, the church to be born, Jesus had to accomplish his work. When Jesus died on the cross, 1 John 2 and 2 tells us that he was the propitiation for our sins. That means that his death was necessary, <clears throat> excuse me, necessary. As it is written in the book of Hebrews, I'm going to have you turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And you'll have to forgive the crackle in my voice. I'm struggling with some allergies. Brother Bob is keeping me stocked on... <laughs> On throat lozenges. <clears throat> All right. Hebrews chapter 9, it's towards the back. And we're going to read verses 15 through 17. All right. And it says, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, 
that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. So Jesus' death was necessary, and this scripture in Hebrews is explaining that to us. A testament is, as we mentioned in our very first study, is a will or a testament. It's the wishes of one, um, a covenant or a desire of one that is um, passing on. We can write up, we can go see an attorney, write up our last will and testament. These are our wishes. And so this scripture is telling us that if there is a testament, then it's necessary that someone has to die because that will and testament doesn't come into force until that one is dead, right? So you could go and you could write a will and a testament now, but it's not going to take any effect until something would happen. And so it doesn't have any strength or any power. And so Jesus' death gave humankind the possibility of an inheritance of eternal life. His death was necessary for this new testament to take place, for this new birth of the church to happen. Jesus must die and be resurrected. All right. So the promise of the Holy Ghost was given. And we talked a little bit about this last week where we left off that just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples that they were not, that he was going away and they were not to go and start their ministry and just get busy working for him just yet. But he told them to go and wait in the city of Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. So meaning go to Jerusalem, wait, you may not understand it. You may not fully comprehend it, but I'm asking you to obey. So they had to obey the directive Even without full understanding, they had to go and they had to wait for power from on high. Okay? Without the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the Great Commission would have been a hopeless task to fulfill. And he knew that. So before he sent them off to go do everything that he had commissioned them to do, he was going to give them the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Let's read Luke 24 and 49. So we go back a few books there. Still in the New Testament. Luke 24 and 49. This is Jesus speaking. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in this city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power 
from on high. If we look at Acts 1 and 8, flip over there as well. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So they had a job to do. The preaching of the gospel was to be done, but they needed the power and the inspiration of the Spirit in order to do it. In Acts 1 and 8, Jesus promised the disciples power. The Holy Ghost was the power that would extend the influence of the disciples' ministry to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it was going to begin in Jerusalem. They were given that that much instruction. All right, so while we're still in Acts chapter 1, let's go ahead and read verses 5 through 8. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. If we go to the next chapter, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we see that this Holy Ghost promise that he had given to them, that it happened on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. So verses 1 through 4 of Acts 2, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven or divided tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So that day, about 120 of Jesus' disciples gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem. Among them, listed in Acts chapter 1, were Mary, the mother of Jesus, his brothers, and the 12 apostles. So they obeyed his directive to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise to come. And because of their obedience... They went there, and for approximately seven to ten days, they remained in constant prayer and supplication. And then the Jewish feast day of Pentecost arrived. And this was a feast that many Jews would come to celebrate from all over, all over the world. And Jerusalem was quite crowded. So the disciples were all with one accord in their worship and prayer. They were obeying what the Lord had told them to do. And the place where they were sitting was overwhelmed by the sound of a rushing mighty wind that came from heaven. Acts 2 verse 3 records another supernatural event following the wind. 
It describes cloven tongues like flames of fire appeared and sat upon each of them. And of the many wonderful things that took place in that upper room, one of the greatest miracles recorded is in verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues or in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to do so. When they were all filled with the Spirit, the sign of the baptism of the Holy Ghost was given. The initial sign of the baptism of the Holy Ghost was that they would speak with other tongues. The disciples began to speak with other tongues, glorifying God in languages that they had never learned themselves. Well, as you can imagine, this drew quite a crowd and some questions began to arise because they had not seen anything like this. The Feast of Pentecost was a holy day in Israel that was 50 days after the Passover. Jews from all over the Roman Empire were gathered at Jerusalem. So the news began to spread throughout the city that there was some events taking place in this upper room. They spill out into the streets and a great multitude gathered to see what was happening to them. The disciples were still praying and rejoicing and speaking in tongues under the intoxicating influence of the Spirit. Jesus had promised the disciples in John chapter 16, verses 22 to 24, that the day would soon come when their hearts would be filled with a joy that no one could take from them. And the baptism of the Holy Ghost fulfilled that promise. The Apostle Peter later described it as joy unspeakable and full of glory in 1 Peter 1 and 8. So this multitude of foreign Jews began to gather around and they began to hear the disciples praising God in their own native language. So we had people from various parts of the world and they would say, ah, I know what he's saying. I know what they're saying. I know what they're saying. And they began to hear their own native tongue. They knew that these were people that had no way of knowing these languages on their own, from their own ability. And so some of them began to ask some questions. They were asking, what meaneth this? Some asked, what's happening? You know, what, what is all this? What's, what's going on here? And others were just dismissive of the, of the event, and they just accused the disciples of being drunk. And it was early in the day, yet they were accusing them of being drunk. Well, <clears throat> that stirred up somebody. So Peter heard these false accusations of drunkenness, and immediately he stood up in the disciples' defense. And if you've been reading in the Gospels, you've learned a little bit about Peter's personality and this isn't surprising to us that he jumps up to defense. But remember, just last week when we were talking about Peter, he was a fearful man who had denied even knowing Jesus and had run off to hide. He was acting cowardly and fearfully, and he denied his Lord as he was being led off to crucifixion. But now we see, just a few weeks later, just a short time has passed, 
And it was a strong Simon Peter who stood and addressed that crowd that day. And it was a man who had been given power from on high through the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So remember that Peter is there. He's living in this moment. He received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And with that baptism comes power. We have just read multiple scriptures as we open this up tonight of you will receive power. You will receive power from on high. You will be receive power so you can be witnesses. And that is exactly what's happened to Peter. He is not the same fearful coward that is denying the Lord, but now he has been empowered and he stands up against these false accusations of drunkenness and he immediately begins to speak and preach with power that only the anointing of the Holy Spirit can give. The other 11 apostles stood with Peter in full agreement as he preached the first sermon of the newborn church of Jesus Christ. What we have just witnessed is the birth of the church. This is when the Lord is establishing his church on this day of Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Peter begins his message. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day which according to the Jewish timeline, that would have been nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. We'll continue that verse in part of his sermon here in just a moment. So Peter is declaring, wait a second, they're not drunk. Let me just come to the defense here. That's not what's happening. And he spoke to it and explained to them what was, in fact, happening. Peter declared that the outpouring of the Holy Ghost was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that in the last days God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And you can read that in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. So a prophecy that one of those men from hundreds of years before had prophesied came to pass on this day. And Peter, empowered by the Holy Ghost he had just received, stood up to explain and bring some clarity to this situation and to preach the first message of this new church. So a worldwide outpouring of the Holy Ghost with the accompanying initial sign of speaking in other tongues would be God's blessing upon humanity throughout the church age. Peter preached to them the death burial and resurrection of Christ and told them that their own wicked hands were guilty of Jesus's death on Calvary. So he preached this incredible sermon and you can read that this week in Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 36. But conviction that day gripped the hearts of the people as Peter was preaching this inspired sermon. Was this Peter's words? No, he was inspired by the Holy Ghost that he had just received. In desperation and sincerity, the people began crying out to Peter 
and to the rest of the apostles. And they asked a question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, an honest question deserves an honest answer. Wouldn't you agree? They had a question. They wanted to know. They heard the gospel. They heard that Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected, and that many of them were guilty of his death, that many of them were involved in it. And they were pricked in their heart is what the scripture says. And so they asked this honest question, what do we do? The question, what shall we do, was all important. It was such an important question because what they were asking is they wanted to know how they could be saved. So the responsibility rested squarely on Peter's shoulders to deliver to this multitude the proper New Testament plan for salvation. Peter, if you remember, had been given the keys to the kingdom. Jesus had spoken over him during his earthly ministry and said to Peter, Upon this rock I shall build my church, and I give to you the keys to the kingdom. And for the first time, Peter was about to use those keys to unlock the message of salvation to those present. He was about to give them the answer to their question, and upon this rock, the church of Jesus Christ would be built. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 is Peter's answer to their honest question, and it says this. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. How beautiful this is. Simply by obeying God's command to repent of their sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus, they were promised that the same baptism of the Holy Ghost that the 120 had received that day would also be poured out on them. And in the next verse, Peter extended that promise of the Holy Ghost outpouring to all believers throughout all of the church age. In verse 39, he says this, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Peter went on to speak many other words that day, exhorting the crowd to save themselves without delay. And by the time Peter was finished preaching, the word of God had done its powerful work. 3,000 souls presented themselves for baptism in Jesus' name. And we can be confident because of the promise spoken in Acts chapter 2 that those souls God would fulfill his promise and not only see them baptized in water, but also that he baptized them with the Holy Ghost. So we're going to break down Peter's message of salvation just a little bit piece by piece. The first piece we're going to talk about is repentance. And we've talked a little bit about repentance in past lessons Repentance is not a concept that Peter introduces for the first time, but repentance is an essential part of salvation. 
And it's mentioned all throughout scripture. To repent means to experience godly sorrow and conviction for sin and to turn away from them. Repentance is the act of turning away from a life of sin and turning to God. The scriptures stress in the strongest terms that repentance is absolutely necessary. It's necessary. In Genesis chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities failed to repent. And because of their lack of repentance, they were destroyed by fire and brimstone. The people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jesus said this fact would condemn those who refuse to repent in our generation in Matthew 12, 41. John the Baptist commanded everyone in Judea to repent and prepare their hearts for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself proclaimed, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish in Luke 13, 3. And in the Great Commission, those last words we talked about last week that Jesus spoke before he ascended into heaven, even there commanded repentance in Luke 24, 47. And on the day of Pentecost, repentance is an essential part of the plan of salvation that was preached that day by Peter and the other apostles that stood with him in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So repentance is important. 2 Peter 3 and 9 says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This tells us that it is the Lord's desire that nobody should perish, that nobody should be condemned to an eternity in hell, but that all all should come to a place of repentance. That is his desire. <clears throat> the next piece of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost that we'll pull out tonight is water baptism. <clears throat> his next instruction to the crowd that day after repent was to be baptized. Scripture is emphatic that baptism is essential to our salvation. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night, remember we talked about that one last week? He sought guidance. He asked Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus told him that he had to be born again. Remember we talked about how funny that must have sounded to him and he didn't know how to be born again, and he likened that to the only experience of birth that he had, and that was his original birth. But Jesus explained it to him and told him in John 3 and 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So baptism is essential. It is important, and it is, it is essential to our <clears throat> excuse me, salvation. Baptism changes our identity. By following Peter's command, the believers took on the covenant name of Jesus. 
Galatians 3 and 27, Paul wrote these words. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This putting on of Christ changes our identity. We are no longer our own. We are no longer who we were before we went into that water. The old has passed away and we become new. We have a new identity in Jesus. And baptism is our public declaration of our repentance and our intention to follow after Jesus. Baptism also saves souls. Other scripture verses demonstrate the importance of baptism with regard to salvation. Mark 16, 16. Mark wrote, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. 1 Peter 3, 20-21 compares Noah and his family being saved from the flood to the waters of baptism. And it says this, Eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Baptism saves souls. It's a part of the plan of salvation. So repentance in the Bible is symbolic of death to sin into the, the life that we lived before we encountered Jesus. And we've talked a little bit about this. When we repent, it's likened unto we're, we're putting it on the altar and we're, we're dying to ourselves and our wills and our desires. <clears throat> and we're going to um, turn away from sin so that we can walk toward Jesus. Excuse me. Spiritually speaking, when a person repents... He is actually coming to the cross of Calvary. The old carnal nature is crucified with Christ. So if we are crucified with Christ at repentance, I want you to think about this. After death, we've talked about this, I think, before. After death, we have to do something with that body. We don't let the dead just sit there and, and we don't attend to it and we don't let it just rot and decay, right? We take an action. And so after death to sin, we have to take an action. A person must be buried after death. Romans 6 and 4 says we are buried with him by baptism into death. So our burial is baptism in the water. We are buried with Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit more here about baptism and the specifics of it. All right. Now, throughout history... People have done things a lot of different ways. A lot of traditions have been started. A lot of churches 
throughout history have taken biblical baptism and changed it to meet their needs, to do things their way in a way that might be more convenient for the church. Sometimes it was even a political move. We won't go into all of church history tonight, but what I do want to teach you is that the Bible is very, very clear about baptism and how it should be done. The Bible gives us instruction about baptism. And any variance of that, any variance away from the Bible teaching on baptism is not the way that the apostles did it. It is not the way that the, this brand new baby church that we see in the book of Acts, it's not the way they did it. And it's not how the church of the living God should do it. So it's very important that we get it right and we study baptism and we understand that just because a church down the road does it this way or somebody I know does it this way, the Bible speaks very, very clearly on how we are to be baptized. So let's take a look at that together. <clears throat> the word of God prescribes only one mode of water baptism, and that is by immersion. To immerse. The word baptism is derived from the Greek word baptizo, which is B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, baptizo. And that means to dip, to plunge, to immerse. Now, Mary, if I told you to go do some dishes for me and I handed you a dish and I said, now I want you to wash this dish and I want you to immerse it in the water, you're not going to take the dish and just dip it in and pull it right back out, right? Or you're not going to take it and you're not going to take some water in your hands and throw it at the dish, right? Okay, so you're going to actually take the dish and immerse it down in that water. The word immerse means to put it all the way in, right? Okay, and so the word bapt baptism actually comes from that, the baptizo, which means to plunge, to immerse, to go all the way in. So when the, when the early Christians were talking about baptism, there was no doubt in their mind that you're going to go down in the water. The, word, the very word itself implies that. <clears throat> so immersion is important because only this mode preserves the significance that we just spoke about, that baptism is a burial. The scripture tells us that baptism is a burial, a spiritual burial. So in baptism, a person follows Jesus to the grave. But how are people buried? Like that dish. Are they sprinkled with a few handfuls of dirt at their burial? And then we walk away and say, okay, we, we buried them. No, of course not. Proper burial requires complete submergence. And that is how biblical baptism is conducted. Let's turn to Acts chapter 8, <clears throat> verses 38 and 39. Here we've got an Ethiopian eunuch who is baptized. And 
Philip spoke to him, one of the apostles spoke to him about baptism. And we're going to see what he says. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they both, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. So this is an example of baptism in the early church. This is how they were conducting it. And I don't know about you, but there's some words in there that are clues to me that he was immersed, right? They both went down into the water. So Philip baptizing him had to physically get down into the water in order to conduct the baptism. And then they came up out of the water, it says. Okay, let's look at Romans 6. So that's um, one book over. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So there's a scripture in the teaching of baptism in the book of Romans. And in here, the apostles are are teaching the church in a letter, and they're saying that we're buried in baptism. So again, the terminology we're using is that of being buried, that of being immersed, that of being submerged, right? Not being sprinkled. All right, so another specific instruction that is given in scripture is that baptism should be in the name of Jesus. So Jesus commanded the apostles in Matthew 28, 19 to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Notice that the word name is singular, meaning there's only one name to be baptized in. And when Jesus gave this instruction to his apostles, This is the only time in scripture that we see the instruction listing out the titles, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But before they list those titles in scripture, we have to pay attention to that in the name of. So there is a name, and it's the name of the Father, and it's the name of the Son, and it's the name of the Holy Ghost that we're to be baptized in. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are titles of the one God that reveal aspects of his relationship to humanity. God has revealed himself as the Father in creation. He revealed himself as the Son for our redemption. And he is the Holy Ghost or the Spirit who regenerates and dwells within the believer. So there is one name of salvation. Let's turn to Acts 4 and 12. So we're going to go back to the book of Acts again. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. 
All right. <clears throat> Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So one name given where we find our salvation. The apostles understood when they received the Great Commission that they were actually being given a directive to baptize in the one singular, the one saving name. There's only one name. And that the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost is Jesus. That is his name. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's Jesus. So let me give you an example of what the disciples were doing here. So when someone would go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, they're repeating the directive verbatim rather than obeying the, what the directive is saying to do. So, for example, Brother Sam, if I told you my friend Lulu has a fantastic restaurant and you need to go and you need to try out her enchiladas, you're going to love them. And when you get there and you walk in to Lulu's, you tell her I sent you. Now tell me, are you going to go into Lulu's and walk in to go get those enchiladas, and you're going to say, Lulu, I'm here for your enchiladas. I sent me. No. So if you just repeated what I said verbatim, that wouldn't make much sense at all because you're not doing what I told you to do. You're not going in and telling Lulu that I sent you. You're just going in and echoing what I said. But in order for Lulu to know who you're talking about, you're going to have to use my name. And so when you go in that restaurant, you're going to say, Lulu, Sister B sent me. And she's going to say, oh, yes, yes, come on in, right? So when the disciples baptized, they never once used the titles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look for it. Every time in scripture, they were baptizing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name, in the name, in the name. Scripture after scripture after scripture. They were obeying the directive to go and baptize in the name. So what did they do? They spoke the name when they baptized. They didn't simply repeat verbatim the command because they knew what that name was, and they evoked the name of Jesus. They spoke it when they baptized. So the Father was revealed in the name of Jesus in John 5 and 43. The name given to the Son was Jesus in Matthew 1, 21. The Holy Ghost comes in the name of Jesus, John 14, 26. <clears throat> For this reason, the apostles always in every place in the scripture obeyed Matthew 28 19 they obeyed the directive by baptizing in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins you can read it in Acts chapter 238 when Peter preached it you can read examples of baptism 
in Acts chapter 8, verse 16, Acts chapter 10, verse 48, Acts chapter 19, verse 5, Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Nowhere do we see the disciples repeating the directive and using the titles. So it is important that we use the name of Jesus in baptism. And it's important that we are immersed in the water in baptism. All right. So the last part of Peter's plan of salvation given on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.38 is that we will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Jesus commanded this. In John chapter 3, verse 5, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This verse establishes the necessity of receiving the Holy Ghost. It's important. Jesus commanded that we are born not only of water, but of the Spirit. Paul proclaimed it in Romans 8 and 9. He said, now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So the Holy Ghost is emphasized in those words. It is important that if we are going to be called his, if we are going to be his child, if we are going to be called a Christian, that we should have the spirit of Christ in us. And if we don't, we are not his. Receiving this gift is a beautiful privilege purchased for us by the blood of Jesus. It is the greatest experience you can have. Jesus actually comes and takes up his abode in a human body, our temple. We become the temple of the living God. That body becomes the very temple of the Almighty. So Peter spoke in Acts 2.38 about this Holy Ghost experience. He later described the feeling when the creator dwells in his creation by saying it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Paul described it as righteousness and peace and joy. The baptism of the Holy Ghost is promised to all who obey God's command to repent and who exercise faith in Jesus. Let's turn to Acts chapter 19 verses 1 through 6. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, And they spake with tongues and prophesied. 
So the Apostle Paul had traveled to Ephesus, and he found some disciples that didn't yet have the Holy Ghost, even though they were believers. You know, there's people like that out there that are believers in Jesus, but they don't yet have the Holy Ghost. Maybe no one's told them that it's for them that they can experience it. Although they had been baptized unto John's baptism of repentance, so they had repented, they had not been baptized in the name of Jesus. So that's where Paul started. He met them where they were at. He took what they already knew and what they had already experienced, and he built on it. He expounded on it. And he instructed them first of their need to be baptized in Jesus' name. And so they were re-baptized in the name of Jesus. That's important. It's important to have the name of Jesus in your baptism. So much so that these individuals who had already been baptized were now re-baptized. And the scripture tells us when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them. And how do we know that the Holy Ghost came on them? There was an evidence and they spake with tongues. You're absolutely right. When the Holy Ghost comes, the evidence that you've just received it is that you will speak with other tongues. And that's what we're going to talk about next. The initial evidence of the Holy Ghost. So Acts chapter 2 records the initial outpouring of the Holy Ghost. When the believers in the upper room spoke with tongues. So do all speak with tongues when they receive the Holy Ghost? This is a great question. And a lot of people ask this question. And so it deserves... A, a sincere consideration. We should talk about it. We should answer this question. In considering the necessity of speaking with other tongues, the Bible is our source of information. So again, we're not going to study church history. We're not going to look through, you know, what our neighbor tells us or what this person says about it, but let's go back to the word of God. And we're going to see, is it necessary to speak with other tongues? And who spoke with tongues in the scriptures? Well, Acts 2 and 4, we've been dancing all over that tonight, and that's the day of Pentecost when the disciples were waiting in the upper room and obeying the command of Jesus to go and wait in Jerusalem. The scripture tells us they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives them the utterance. This means that none of them were excluded from that event. All 120 of them spoke with tongues as God gloriously filled them with his spirit. Among them were Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' four brothers, and all the apostles, and many more of his disciples. And they all spoke with tongues. So the spirit that day in the upper room didn't fall in a handful here and then pass over and skip 10 people and then fall over here. And some of them didn't say, oh, you know what, I don't think it's for me. No, the, the Bible tells us that they were all filled. And so everyone in the upper room was filled. The Samaritans received the same experience, and a miraculous outward sign occurred to tell everyone when people received the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 8, you can read this story this week. There was a sorcerer watching nearby, and his name was Simon, Simon the sorcerer. And he was watching them, and the scripture tells us that this crowd, this group, was filled with the Holy Ghost. And Simon the sorcerer, who kind of liked spiritual things, probably, knew 
that they had just received something incredible, this heavenly gift, and he wanted it. And he went and he offered to buy it from them for money because he wanted that. He wanted that experience. Now, if receiving the Holy Ghost was just something that just happened and there was no evidence or no sign, then I ask you, how did Simon know that they received the Holy Ghost and why was he trying to buy it? There must have been some outward sign and evidence that got his attention that he said, whoa, what is that? Because I want it. I'll pay for it. That evidence is speaking with tongues because every time someone receives the gift of the Holy Ghost, there is an outward sign or evidence that in, of speaking in tongues. The Holy Ghost also fell on Cornelius and other Gentiles, and they too spoke with other tongues. This sign convinced the skeptical Jewish Christians that the Gentiles had in fact received the Holy Ghost. And this sign alone was sufficient for Peter to proclaim that the Gentiles had received the same experience that they had ex experienced. And you can read this in Acts chapter 10 and 11. In Acts chapter 19, this group of John the Baptist disciples that we just read about who were rebaptized in Jesus' name by the Apostle Paul, the scripture tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost as evidenced by speaking with tongues. So over and over and over again in scripture, the accompanying sign of speaking with tongues is either stated or it's very strongly implied in every outpouring of the Holy Ghost that's recorded in the book of Acts. Receiving the Holy Ghost is coupled together with speaking in tongues. And so that can assure us that tongues is the sign, it is the evidence, it's how we know that we know that we know that his spirit is living inside of us. <clears throat> All right, so why the Holy Ghost? What is the purpose of it, and do we need it? Is it really that important for us? Well, let's take a look at what Scripture teaches. So the Spirit gives eternal life. The baptism of the Holy Ghost gives us the very power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead. One of my favorite passages, I say that all the time, I know, because I have lots of them, but one of my favorites is Romans 8.11. And it says, If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. That is talking about the resurrection day when the dead in Christ will rise and we'll all go on up there to meet him in the air. And it's saying that if you have that spirit with inside of you, it's the same spirit that raised up Jesus from, dead, from the dead, and it will quicken your mortal body, and you will be resurrected as well. So the spirit gives us eternal life. It's the power that gives us eternal life. Without the Holy Ghost, the early disciples would have been powerless to save the hostile world of their day. The Spirit gives us power. We learned that tonight in Acts 1 and 8. Ye shall receive power 
after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. He gives us the Holy Ghost. Now, I know that we live in a tough world, and we like to talk a lot about how awful our world is. But these were people that were living during the mighty Roman Empire. And they were living in a time that was very hostile to Christians and any followers of Jesus. But through the power of God that was within them, they were able to conquer even the Roman Empire with the good news of Calvary. And they were able to spread the word of God all around. It was the power of the Holy Ghost that gave them the ability to do that. The Bible, or I'm sorry, the Spirit also teaches us. The Bible is not a product of human thinking and ability. We established that in our first night of study. 2 Peter 1 and 21 tells us, But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And they wrote this word that we read. It's not man's thinking. It's not man's word. It's not man's rationale. But the Spirit of the Lord moved upon them and gave them the words to write. Since it required the inspiration of the Spirit for the writing of the Scripture, it also requires the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to understand God's Word. You cannot approach the Bible like any other book and use your own human thinking and rationale only. But Jesus promised us that the Spirit would teach us all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So you need the Holy Ghost to fully understand God's scripture. And if someone does not have the Holy Ghost, they cannot have a full understanding because it is the Spirit that teaches and gives inspiration. The Spirit gives righteousness, peace, and joy in Romans 14, 17. We're reminded the Holy Ghost not only gives us power to live a holy and clean life, but also gives us the joy and peace that only God can give. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And the Spirit imparts the love of God. Romans 5 and 5 says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So the gift of the Holy Ghost is a baptism of the love of God. If you're struggling with somebody, go pray in the Spirit and ask God to baptize you with his love. When you have a problem, maybe with each other, that never happens, right? Take it to prayer and give it to the Lord and let that Spirit that's within you, do a work and give you the love of God because it is the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Ghost. Someone asked the question, do you need the Holy Ghost to go to heaven? I joke and I say, I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, but I say, honey, you need the Holy Ghost to go to Walmart. We need the Holy Ghost to shed abroad that love of God every day in our hearts. So yes, the Holy Ghost is that important. It gives us this boundless love that proceeds from God himself. It fills our souls and overflows from our lives like a mighty river of love. It is that same love that cries earnestly to every thirsty heart 
in Revelation 22:17. Let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. <clears throat> so the I'm going to tell you a story in closing. Floating one summer night down one of America's rivers, a man and his companion sought vainly for the sign of a human habitation where they could spend the night or a place along the steep bank where they could pitch their camp. At last, wet and cold and exhausted, they drew up their boat on a sandbar. There, groping around in the darkness, they gathered together a few pieces of driftwood, and after several failed attempts, succeeded and lighting a fire. How carefully they tended that fire, brooding over it until they were certain that it was going to burn. And when at length it began to burn briskly and brightly, illuminating their dismal surroundings and warming their cold and weary bodies, they realized as never before what a friendly, what a friend fire is to humanity. The Bible uses the metaphor of fire when talking about the Holy Ghost. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it reminds us, quench not the spirit. Don't put water on that fire. Don't let it go out. Truly, the indwelling Holy Spirit with power is the most valuable treasure and friend that we can have. It teaches us, it comforts us, it helps us to love, yes, even the unlovable. It leads us into his word and into truth. It saves us, it gives us power to be witnesses. Why would anyone not want this precious gift of the Holy Ghost? What a treasure it is. And I'm thankful tonight to have it in my heart. Brother Sam, are you filled with the Holy Ghost? Mary, are you filled with the Holy Ghost? Isn't it a wonderful thing? It's amazing, she said. Amen. And I'm thankful that he filled the both of you with it and that I was there to be a witness to it. It's exciting. All right, let's close out in prayer tonight. Do you guys have any questions before we close? You can say, I've got it, I've got it. Something about the power of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you, God, for that incredible sermon on the day of Pentecost that teaches us, God, what we must do. We thank you, God, for a place of repentance and that you're faithful to forgive us. We thank you, God, that you lead us, God, into the waters of baptism where our sins are washed away in the precious name of Jesus, the only name that can save us. And we thank you, Jesus, for your spirit that is for everyone, that is for all who will receive it. And we pray, God, that you would just help us, Lord, to never forget the power that is within us through your spirit the spirit that teaches us, that guides us, that gives us love, the spirit, God, that has saved us, Lord, and that one day will quicken these mortal bodies and take us up to be with you. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight, and I pray that you would place this word deep within our hearts. 
Let the enemy not pluck it out from us this week, but let us get deep into it. Let it get deep in our hearts and our minds and our spirits and give us understanding of everything we have heard tonight. In the name of Jesus, amen. Your homework this week is to read or listen, as you like to do on that long drive, to the book of Acts. So while you're cleaning, while you're doing dishes, immerse those dishes in that water and listen to the, the book of Acts. And I think that you'll be excited to hear the teachings and the story of the first church, the early church. Because you and I are an extension of that very same church. That's exciting. Y'all are dismissed in Jesus' name.